You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. I'm going to read you a story now. Good, I like story time. Right. Are you sitting comfortably? Yes. Then, uh, you are sitting comfortably? Yes. Then I'll begin. Right. Here is a very, very important little book. Mm-hmm. Okay? We have a story all about Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl, one of my favourites. He's one of my favourites, yes. yes. Have a look at this. As the lights for Starlight Express dimmed on the Great White Way, just around the corner, director Trevor Nunn's other undertaking continued to run strong. Les Mis held a soft spot in his heart. After all, he had helped launch the original production at the Barbican Theatre while he was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. The show was the first major success for the Royal Shakespeare Company in terms of creating a production that wasn't just a restaging of Shakespeare. Writing off this success, the RSC would attempt it again two years later, with another book-to-stage adaptation. But after receiving extremely negative reviews and an appallingly disappointing run on Broadway, the company would retreat to its roots of Shakespearean plays within the safe confines of London and their home base in Stratford-upon-Avon. It would be another 25 years and two artistic directors before the RSC would once again assume the courage to stray away from their Shakespearean comfort zones and once again attempt a new adaptation. This time, instead of diving into the bleak and ramshackle world of the French Revolution, they would instead visit the eccentric, dreadful world of Cruncham Hall to follow a five-year-old girl who partakes in the heinous act of reading books. While Matilda started as a desire to do a simple Christmas time show, it would go on to break records on the West End and become a bona fide hit on Broadway, running for more than four years and still going strong in London as of 2020. But the question is, how did this happen? Matilda could have easily been tossed to the side as simple children's entertainment. Add in the fact that it was helmed by a director whose previous two attempts at musicals were commercial duds, and that it was written by two guys who never even dreamt that they would possibly have a show on Broadway, and it makes the success of Matilda even more unprecedented. What were the special ingredients that helped the show resonate with audiences? And what does it have to say regarding the process of adapting unconventional source material into a musical that can thrive? How did Matilda become the accidental hit?
A cool English breeze blew through a little avenue of trees outside a great 18th century residence. A warm light could be seen exuding from a small shed at the edge of the garden, or as the man inside had come to call it, his writing hut. The inside was fragrant with the smell of old books and cigarette smoke coming from the man seated in his mother's old chair, feet propped up on an old leather trunk, and an old down sleeping bag pulled over his legs to keep warm. This cozy site was a familiar one for author Roald Dahl. With titles like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, and the BFG under his belt, Dahl had gained much notoriety for his creative and humorous children's books that weren't afraid to mix in the nasty and tragic realities of life. Dahl's childhood was occupied by numerous shadows. Since his mother struggled to raise six children of her own, Dahl was sent to attend St. Peter's boarding school in England. Through his time there, he was bullied extensively. The violent tendencies of his classmates and headmasters making him lonely and miserable. Nearly 50 years and 15 novels later, Dahl would begin work on what would become his final novel. Over the decades, he had kept a series of idea books where he scribbled different ideas for stories, characters, and dialogue that could down the road be turned into books. The one idea that kept popping up was a story of a child with the ability to move objects using the power of their mind. The child's name would be Matilda. He spent eight months writing, but when he finished, he could tell that something wasn't right. Who was Matilda? The story he had now was a cautionary tale, in which Matilda was extremely naughty and died in the end. Everyone he showed the first draft to disliked it, but could tell that the skeleton of a compelling story was in there. He started the whole book again, rewriting every word to perfect Matilda's motivations and to change her from a wicked child to a resilient, thoughtful child genius, much like Mozart. To re-emphasize the power that books had in terms of education and escapism, he placed Matilda in a situation much similar to his own early childhood, pulling inspiration from his evil headmasters and adults that often underestimate children. When faced with these bullies, Matilda's telekinetic powers would be rooted in imagination and bravery to challenge authority. After two years of tiresome revisions, he finally got the story to a spot where he thought it was fairly okay. Upon the book's release in 1988, Matilda became a role model for young readers. The story stayed true to the other doll books where, even though it was geared towards children, it didn't talk down to them. It gave them a character who was self-sufficient, resourceful, and perseverant in the face of danger, whether it be from her parents or doll's most dastardly villain, Miss Trunchbull. In 1996, Matilda would make her way to the big screen in Danny DeVito's classic film, which was able to successfully extract the style of Dahl and transplant it onto the big screen. A few years after the release of the film, while busy composing music for a youth theater group in his hometown of Perth, Australia, composer Tim Minchin borrowed a copy of the book from his sister. Growing up, he had been a devoted Dahl fan, and Matilda was one of the only books by the author he had yet to read. As he turned the final page, Tim found himself thinking, my god, that's gotta be a musical. After emailing the Doll Estate to figure out who owned the rights to the musical, he received an email back with a simple message. We're interested, send a score. Mention was taken aback. He just wanted to get the rights to stage the show, not birth it. Now knowing that this is what they wanted, he let the project drop. But, the potential for Matilda to be turned into a family musical was still there. 
Around the same time, the Royal Shakespeare Company was in dire straits. Once one of the most collaborative and prestigious theater troops of the 20th century, the company had become demoralized, and the productions had become a shell of their former glories. After taking over for artistic director Terry Hands, Adrian Noble had one major goal, to drastically shake things up. He proposed knocking down the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, which had housed the troupe for over 71 years, moved the company out of the Barbican Center, thus eliminating their presence in London, and had started to adopt a star-driven casting policy that left many actors without work. The business crumbled. Hans was left in awe at the decisions, stating that Noble's strategy was artistic and financial suicide. Amidst immense backlash from the Arts Council, and pretty much every person in Stratford and London, Noble abruptly quit in April 2002 after 11 years in the role, leaving current associate director Michael Boyd with a sudden promotion and a… well, a really tricky situation. The company was in a nearly $5 million deficit, morale was at an all-time low, and the quality of the productions had diminished. One of the biggest problems was the lack of new works. The RSC wasn't established to only present Shakespeare, but to also give storytellers an outlet for their creativity. By 2006, after getting the company moving in an upward direction, Boyd and associate dramaturg Jeannie O'Hare decided that it was finally time to move past the infamous 1988 flop to create a new show that didn't depend on the Bard. And so, the RSC would make the decision to adapt Roald Dahl's Matilda into a new family musical to be performed for a three-month run during their Christmas season. It would be an extremely high-risk move, both financially and artistically but the company couldn't continue living in the past if they wanted to move to the future. Jeannie O'Hare laid out the RSC's proposition to playwright Dennis Kelly. It caught him off guard because usually new musicals start by recruiting a director or a composer first. They also usually bring on board a book writer with some musical experience. Kelly had only been writing for five years up to this point, and his works had been anything but family-friendly. The year before he was approached, he had opened a show called Osama the Hero, which was a tense, controversial look into how, quote, a climate of terror can lead neighbors to torture after an awkward teenager named Gary tries to defend Osama bin Laden. In a state of perplexed confusion, Kelly responded, I don't think I like musicals. Little did he know, that was exactly why the RSC chose him. Learning from the past failures, the company knew that one of the easiest places to fall flat in a musical was with the script. By bringing on the writer first, it would hopefully increase their odds of creating a show that went beyond musical fluff. After a year and a half, a rough draft of the show was passed to a former RSC director named Matthew Warchus. Much like Kelly, Warchus had proven his talent for straight plays, but his reputation in regards to musicals wasn't the best. His new $25 million musical adaptation of The Lord of the Rings was a commercial dud, despite numerous positive reviews, failing to capture the attention of theatergoers. But the RSC acknowledged Warchus's talent for being able to extract meaningful stories from any source material, and trusted him to be the right guiding force for Matilda. He had been presented the project as being a simple Christmas crowd-pleaser, but Warchus could see the potential of the show and had much greater ambitions. 
everything was starting to fall into place. But there was one major problem with Kelly's script. What he had written wasn't a musical. It was a play with gaps. What they needed now was a composer. Hey there. Are you looking for the perfect shirt for the modern theater lover? Well, surprise, you just found it with the first ever Wait in the Wings t-shirt. Perfect for rehearsals, dance calls, and walking like an idiot in a park. No longer will you be just a theater kid. Now you'll be a theater kid with a nice shirt. The shows may have flopped, but your style certainly won't. Give me the f***ing shirt. What? That was $25. Available now. The Weight in the Wings t-shirt. Available now. After walking away from the Matilda project in 2000, Tim Minchin went back to waiting tables hoping to one day make something of his advanced degree in music. Minchin himself never thought he was very good, but he soon found himself falling in love with the Melbourne cabaret scene after playing numerous small clubs as an accompanist. It was during one of these performances that he would play for a man who would change his approach towards music. Minchin was envious of how this man had so adeptly solidified his stage persona. The two would team up and go on to create their own unique brand of shows that were anti-cabaret in the way that their songs were original, harsh, and stupefying. As a byproduct, they became best friends. The years would pass and this style of performance would help Minchin finally shape his own solidified stage persona, which one newspaper referred to as a kind of rationalist Russell Brand. His songs were sharp with a style that consisted of shoving a bunch of different poignant words into a short matter of time. This musicianship, mixed with his witty turn of phrase, would help him to achieve global acclaim. In 2008, he embarked on a UK-Australia tour, with one of the stops being London's Bloomberry Theatre. Here, in a sea of spectators, sat one Matthew Warchus. Warchus had grown tired of listening to the endless pop musicians and songwriters that the RSC had been showing him for over two years. They were all missing something. Warchus knew that Matilda was going to be a show about a genius, and the music needed to go beyond catchy melodies. It needed to be a clever concoction of intelligence and emotion. Nearing the end of the show, Minchin was checking all the boxes of ingenuity, mischief, and anarchy, but he was still missing the component that would have made him the perfect fit. Of course, Matilda needed to make people laugh, but it also needed to make them cry. While Minchin demonstrated mastership of wit and intelligence, his songs were lacking the emotion that Warchus desired. As Minchin took his bow and ran off the stage, Warchus got ready to leave the theater and continue his hunt for a composer. While it was obvious that Minchin wouldn't be his pick, at least now he had a clear vision of what he wanted. Then, Minchin returned for an encore. He sat down and his fingers began to slowly dance along the piano keys as he dove into a song called White Wine in the Sun. This sealed the deal. Minchin had to compose this musical and Warchus approached him with the offer. 
Nearly 10 years after walking away from Matilda, the project had found him once again, evoking a distinguished and eloquent response from Minchin. You're f***ing joking! Awesome! When he told his wife Sarah, she responded by saying, why don't they get someone proper to do it? She made a good point. Minchin's whole style didn't exactly scream family-friendly musical theater. But it did scream doll. He was a rebel, he was intelligent, and he knew how to take things to the limit of almost going too far. The opportunity to write for the Royal Shakespeare Company, while also getting to tackle the work of his favorite author, was too good to pass up. And so, the main creative team of Matilda was set. There was the playwright, who had never even attempted to write a musical, the director, who struggled with making them bankable, and a raunchy Australian comedian. The risks of the high-stakes gamble that the RSC had placed were raised. The question is, would the team prove to be the ace in the hole? Prior to signing onto the show, Dennis Kelly had never read the book or watched the movie. When he started working on the script, he read through the book a few times, but he still refused to watch the film, knowing that it would be too easy to just copy and paste the same beats. One of the biggest advantages for him was that he had grown up with Dahl, and the style of writing was somewhat ingrained in him. He could also tell while reading his books that most of the time, Dahl was having more fun than the reader. But when tackling one of the most iconic characters, Kelly wanted to get a more intimate look into Dahl's mind. To help achieve this, he made a journey to tour his estate. The house itself was impressive with the way it dripped of simple elegance, but he soon found himself walking down a little avenue of trees, through the garden, and to the shed. Though the light no longer peeked out from beneath the door, Kelly was met with the familiar smell of old books and an easily imagined tableau of Dahl with his unoccupied chair, the abandoned old leather trunk, and a crumpled old down sleeping bag laying lifeless on the floor. Kelly could instantly feel a connection. The windows were covered so that it was just him and the worlds that he was creating. Though Kelly was somewhat new to writing, he could relate to the feeling of using it as a means to escape. Early in his life, he had been plagued by insecurity and a desire to prove himself to people. By his late 20s, alcohol use began to consume him, and he slowly saw that he was heading down a dangerous road. He started spending one night a week with an amateur theater group in Barnett, and it eventually became a saving grace. It was here that he discovered the power of the written word and soon he became more focused on writing than on alcohol. He made only one rule to himself. He wasn't going to write to impress others or to become rich. He was going to write for himself. By the time Tim Minchin got his hands on Kelly's script, he was blown away with how he was on the road to figuring out how to structure Matilda for the stage. When deciding to tackle the project, Kelly felt a sense of responsibility to the original story but he also knew that he would need to abandon it because a book isn't a play. 
The structure of the novel is made up of episodic segments, following Matilda through her home life, her school life, and her relationship with Miss Honey, meaning that the base story didn't lend itself to a dramatic narrative. Add in the fact that Dahl doesn't include different characters' points of view, and it left Kelly moaning periodically over morning tea while exclaiming, It's like he makes it up as he goes along! He realized that to make the story work, it wouldn't be able to follow the traditional structure of theater, but needed to exist in a more thematic and metaphorical universe. Staying true to the work of Dahl, and their shared love of being able to escape through the craft of storytelling, Kelly figured that the best way to blend the segments together would be by having Matilda tell stories of her own. What would result would be a subplot revolving around an escapologist and his wife's desire to have a child. The addition helped the story transcend into a tale chronicling the journey of both Matilda and her teacher as they fight to overcome their oppressors while also searching for someone who cares and understands them. The story now had a dramatic narrative and a baseline for further exploration into the character's motivations. After reading through the script, Tim Minchin made the decision not to go back and reread through the original book. As far as he was concerned, Kelly's book was now the source text. When the two met, Minchin was adamant that he didn't want any lyrics or song titles. He just wanted Kelly to mark, song here? Question mark? They, along with orchestrator Chris Nightingale, engaged in months of textural analysis tug-of-war. Director Matthew Warchus knew that the moments of push and pull were crucial in advancing the show, and he would silently sit back, letting Minchin and Kelly fight it out before hearing one sentence that would make him go, Right. Minchin eventually developed a strong roadmap for the differing styles of songs that would fill the show. For the first non-narrative song in the show, Minchin tapped into his inner child, and went back to one of his earliest memories. When he was growing up on his grandfather's farm, he would always climb over the gate only to have to wait for his family to fiddle with the lock. He made a promise to himself that he would never open the farm gate, because gates weren't made to be walked through. They were made to be hurdled. He was drawn to the idea of the way that children look at things, and the promises they make to themselves about the things they'll do or that they'll never do as adults. The number called When I Grow Up would be rooted in upbeat optimism for children and a melancholic nostalgia for their parents. In 2009, the Royal Shakespeare Company would formally announce that they would be staging Matilda with the hopes of a 2010 premiere. By the time the first workshops began in London, it became even more apparent that the musical still had a very long way to go. By the end of the second round of workshops, the creative team found that they had something in common with Roald Dahl. They had no idea who Matilda was either, and they had to write a song for her. They feared that having her sing through the whole show would have just made it another Annie. The team was even playing around with the idea of not having Matilda sing a single song until the discovery of her telepathic powers in the second act, to make the moment more powerful. She would break into a song called Magical, but the number wasn't working because it was projecting too much of a Disney vibe. On top of all of this, they had written too much, especially for Matilda's best friend, Hortensia. Originally a big part of the novel, she had two big songs called Revolting Children and Now That She's Gone. Her character was so fleshed out and fun in the way that she was allowed to be defiant that she actually ended up outshining Matilda, who came off as passive in every scene. 
Sure, Matilda suffers constant mistreatment from her parents and teachers, but the team knew that at its heart, the show wasn't about child abuse. It was about good triumphing over evil. Matilda couldn't be a victim, and she couldn't be the perfect Annie character either. Going back to Doll, she had to be willing to be a little bit naughty. This revelation proved to be a breakthrough for the team. They could make Matilda the anti-Annie. Minchin reworked the music so that the characters would no longer be so explicit in stating their feelings in the songs, and Kelly cut Hortensia's role extensively, translating many of the attributes to Matilda. But the problem of trying to craft a suitable song for Matilda's climatic use of telekinesis persisted. It couldn't be a happy-go-lucky Disney vibe, but it couldn't be dark, brooding 1990s Depeche Mode either. Minchin needed to find a proper mix. Minchin kept toiling with different styles before walking into a workshop with a song in hand that he felt would do. The number would dive into Matilda's psychological state as she starts to realize that despite her parents referring to her as a lousy little worm and a good case for population control, she may be different in a unique and beautiful way. The song was called Quiet, and it was exactly what the climax needed as the building music would reflect the tension boiling inside of Matilda before she finally reaches a point that she's able to tip a cup over with her mind. The workshops were a time of great experimentation for Matilda, more so than many other productions, with minor characters being removed, sections being added, then cut, then added again, and multiple moments being molded to hit the right tone. The character of Matilda was now complex and layered. While a positive for the story, it created a difficult hurdle in casting. Matilda is a five-year-old child. It's hard enough to get a five-year-old to tell you what they had for breakfast without getting onto a tangent about how their friend Louie ate boogers that he found underneath his classroom desk. Getting a five-year-old to carry a two-and-a-half-hour show would be impossible. The creatives were trepidatious about having a child in the role out of fear that they wouldn't be able to maintain the audience's attention or sustain the tension and drama of the story. Having children in lead roles wasn't new in Europe, with Oliver and Billy Elliot going on to be massive hits, but Matilda was bigger than all of them. Whoever wore that boarding school uniform would need to be able to sing, dance, and roller skate. Wait, sorry. Wrong video. She would need to be able to sing, dance, and carry massive monologues. Keeping in the spirit of experimentation, they started with an all-adult cast. Then they played around with only Matilda being played by a child. Then they tried an adult playing Matilda, and at one point they even considered having Matilda as a puppet. But through it all, they were beginning to sense that there was a golden emotion they could get from children that they just couldn't find in adults. Following this instinct, and after seeing the kids doing their thing, it was settled that actual children would play the younger kids, and adults would play the older 11-year-olds. For Matilda, the perfect age was around 10 years old, because it would mean that the actresses would be emotionally mature enough for the role, but they wouldn't be too big to destroy the illusion of being a young child. The casting would follow the same style as Billy Elliot, with kids rotating throughout the week. This was in part due to UK labor laws, but also because Warches didn't want the kids' lives to be completely disrupted. He also knew that if the girls performed every night, then it would kill the freshness of the show. With the role of Matilda established, they now needed to find her polar opposite. They needed to find Miss Trunchbull. 
taking cues from Quentin Blank's illustrations and Dahl's writing, Trunchbull had to be a gigantic holy terror. A fierce, tyrannical monster who frightened the life out of pupils and teachers alike. In the first draft, Kelly actually had too much fun writing Trunchbull that he made her character comically evil. While Roald Dahl's widow could sense that the character was headed in the right direction, she told him, You must remember, she's a murderer. The team had seen many women for the role, but in what's possibly a compliment to those who auditioned, none of them screamed, Check out my medieval torture device, the Chokey, that I stole from my local Ikea. What they needed was a man. Warchus was adamant that even though they would be casting a man for the role, he didn't want a comedy act. He needed a great psychological actor who could bring Trunchbull to the terrifying stature necessary for making her a threat against Matilda. After seeing multiple men for the role, the team finally decided that Bertie Carvel had the precise diction and menacing stature to bring Trunchbull to life. But taking over the role of a character that had dominated the minds of legions of readers wasn't an easy task. He knew that he couldn't just come out onto the stage and twirl the hair on his boil for two hours. But rather, he needed to make her a real character, whose anger and motivations weren't superficial. Bertie viewed himself as a detective, trying to find a way to view Trunchbull from the inside to create a full psychological portrait of a monster. First, he had to gather all of the evidence. This included Roald Dahl's book, Dennis Kelly's script, and Tim Minchin's songs. He dove extensively into the given circumstances that made her who she had become by asking himself countless questions. What would it be like to wake up as her every day? What was her childhood like? Why does she hide her femininity? And most importantly, why does she work in a school if she loathes children? With Birdie cast as Trunchbull, then came the question of who could play her polar opposite as the warm, supportive figure who actually understands and cares for Matilda. Who could be Miss Honey? Get it? During one of the workshops, Matthew Warches had to fly to New York for business and had his wife, Lauren Ward, meet with Tim and Dennis to help continue fleshing out Miss Honey while he was away. Lauren had only seen snippets of the show thus far, but she figured that doing one workshop would help her husband. That one workshop turned into her being cast as Miss Honey. Rehearsals were intense for Bertie, Lauren, and the rest of the principals. Not blisters on their feet and blood dripping from their socks intense, but psychologically from the overtime they were having to put in rehearsing with three different Matildas, played by Andrea Bertola, Josie Griffiths, and Carrie Ingram. Even though he was tasked with being a despicable villain who despised children, Bertie felt anything but. The children inspired him in the way that they were able to harness the ability to play pretend naturally. It gently reminded him that at the end of the day, the most important thing to remember with acting is to have a fearless sense of play and to keep alive your innate ability to make believe. The team was now ready to begin their final push towards opening at the Courtyard Theater in the RSC's home base of Stratford-upon-Avon. For an intense two months, the script was further fine-tuned, while lighting designer Hugh Vanstone and set and costume designer Rob Howell continued working on bringing the world of Matilda to life. Howell had spent two months trying to make a design work where the entire set would have just been school desks. The main problem he was running into with this idea was that there was no way to add any color to it. 
He ran into the same problem when trying to make the entire set made of blackboards. As his frustration continued to build, he suddenly came up with the idea of decorating the set with alphabet tiles. Unlike the blackboards and the school desks, the tiles would still be identifiable no matter the color or the size. It also meant that Howell could have fun by hiding different words in the set. This would help the audience engage in the show as soon as they sat down by looking for all the words that had been pulled from the story. Once Vance Stone's lighting came into the mix, the two knew they had hit a home run. One of the most enduring images of the set design came from the mind of choreographer Peter Darling. While he could sense the beauty that was abundant in When I Grow Up, he was having trouble finding a movement that was able to express the optimism and freedom that comes with being young. After trying different variations, he did the same thing that Minchin had when writing the number and tried to remember a childhood memory. He remembered being young and swinging in a park, feeling like a bird flying through the air. He entered the rehearsal room and decided to rig up some swings, which would help him with creating more than just a pretty dance sequence. They would become an emblem of freedom and defiance. As far as the costume design, Howell had a field day with Dahl's work. The elevated characters in his worlds lent themselves to the stage by giving Howell the security in knowing that he could go as far as his imagination would carry him. While the magical world of Matilda a musical was coming to life through the design, there was still the issue of bringing to life the magic of Matilda the character. In the book and the film, one of the defining characteristics of Matilda is her telekinetic powers. Knowing that this was what most people remembered about her, the temptation to showcase them on stage was high. Early drafts of the script had her tricking her parents with levitation, saving children at her school, and having her sit in a room full of furniture swirling around her. While all of it would have been marvelous to watch on stage, the team realized two important things. First, when the story hit the climactic point where Matilda tips over the cup with her mind, it would have been less astounding when compared to everything that had happened before. And secondly, they were finding that the spectacle was distracting from the story. While there needed to be moments of this excitement, they couldn't be the main focus of the show. It still needed to follow the story of a young girl that uses her genius to outwit her grown-up bullies. By saving the magic for the end, it would be both visually stunning and it would be deeply rooted in the story. Matilda doesn't move stuff just for the sake of moving stuff. She moves stuff as a way of correcting her world. To help with many of the different effects, the Matildas would spend time learning magic with illusionist Paul Keeve. After years of work, the time came for the show's first performance on December 9th, 2010, and the response would be anything but what the RSC was expecting. Matilda could have been a catastrophic flop. The critics could have said it completely missed the mark. It could have been too niche for people to care. The audiences could have been swept away by spectacle without any substance to bring them back. And the RSC could have had another disaster on their hands. Luckily, this was not the case. On the opening night in Stratford, an audience heavy with industry professionals stood to their feet, applauding the trip they had just gone through with Matilda. The reviews were stellar, with critics praising the book, music, direction, design, and performances, placing high praise on Bertie Carvel's nightmare fuel performance of Trunchbull. 
After selling out its month and a half run and being awarded the Critics Circle Theater Award for Best Musical, the RSC announced on March 30th, 2011 that Matilda a Musical would be transferring to the West End that fall under the newly imaginative title, Matilda the Musical. The role of Matilda would go from being held by three children to four. Each girl would perform in two shows and serve as a standby for two other shows each week. While Matilda was a hit out of town at Stratford, the praise and news of the transfer didn't travel fast. Being slated to open in October of 2011, advanced ticket sales were initially low. It was only once performances began that the word of mouth began to spread, and soon the success of Matilda began to snowball, becoming the hottest ticket in London. In all, the production cost $4 million to stage, and in only 26 weeks, it had recouped its investment. Eight months later, it had doubled that. By 2013, the show was playing to 98% capacity of the 1,230-seat Cambridge Theatre, with advanced ticket sales being more than $12 million. Matilda continued to rake in acclaim by winning a record seven Olivier Awards, these were all numbers that no theater producer could overlook, and soon a ruthless bidding war began to take place over bringing the show to New York City. The list consisted of Stuart Thompson of Book of Mormon fame, Virdal and Frankel, who were behind the producers, and Barry Weisler, producer of Susical, who had been talking about the musical since seeing it at Stratford-upon-Avon. But Matilda seemed to be untouchable due to massive behind-the-scenes maneuvering on the part of the RSC. In 1987, the RSC had teamed up with producer Cameron McIntosh to bring Les Mis to New York, where it would become a global phenomenon and gross nearly $2 billion. What should have been a huge win for the company left them only taking in $18 million, a minuscule fraction compared to what McIntosh and other investors walked away with. Boyd knew that the RSC could have another Les Mis success story with Matilda, and this time, they weren't going to be robbed blind. It was the main reason they had chosen to produce the West End version themselves. They weren't going to team up with an independent producer. They were either going to do it themselves or team up with another theater owner. The early frontrunner for Matilda was the same man who had housed Starlight Express during Les Mis's monster run, Jimmy Niederlander. He had maintained a positive working relationship with the RSC for over 40 years after producing their first New York hit, Sherlock Holmes, in the 1970s. Their overseeing producer up to this point was Andre Chesensky, the former head of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Really Useful Group. The closer the move got, the more the RSC realized that they needed a New York partner who could help them navigate the inner workings of Broadway theater, including the Tony campaign, marketing, press, and production costs. In a somewhat shocking move, the RSC decided to partner with the Dodgers, a team of producers whose most recent hit, Jersey Boys, had saved them from declaring bankruptcy. On the creative front, the team knew that Matilda would be entering a season with tough competition from other female protagonists, including Cinderella and Annie. Many were worried that the show wouldn't be able to appeal to the same families who were buying tickets to attend shows like Wicked, they toyed around with the idea of softening parts of the script and even dropping the British accents. While the temptation to revamp the show was high, they realized that if they did, 
they could possibly ruin a good thing through their second guessing. And so, the show more or less stayed the same. Up to this point, there had been lots of comparisons between Billy Elliot and Matilda. While it was flattering in an artistic sense, from a business standpoint, it was terrifying. Sure, Billy Elliot was a critical hit in New York, but it closed much sooner than anyone expected, closing after recouping its initial investment. In large part, the reason for this was because of the high running costs that came from the large cast, dance rehearsals, and tutoring of the younger cast members. The producers figured they should take the money and run before the sales had the chance to dip. There was also the problem that with a London to New York transfer, capitalization and expenses could at times be three to four times greater than the initial mounting on the West End due to Broadway union contracts. The producing team looked closely at the financial model for Billy Elliot and strove to create one that would be more cost effective. Knowing that Broadway reviewers tended to favor more conventional musicals, they decided to limit the weekly running costs to hopefully generate strong word of mouth. Nothing would be added to the set or the costumes, and they would have fewer rotating child performers in the ensemble by having them instead rotate through multiple roles. This would mean that the production wouldn't need to hire as many children, thus helping them avoid inflating the tutoring budget. While running costs for Billy Elliot were around $800,000 a week, Matilda had been able to bring theirs down to $600,000, hopefully meaning there would be room for profit. Now, they just needed to open. On April 11, 2013, the newly added overture began to play, and the entire production team sat in trepidation of what was to come. Would this show work in America? Or had it all been a fluke? Maybe the show was too British for the country and no one would get it. With lines such as, he's like the TARDIS, considerably roomier inside, the odds of that being true were high. Add in the commercial failure of Lord of the Rings and the fact that Warchus's latest Broadway adaptation of the movie Ghost had premiered a year prior to horrible reviews, and it's easy to see why the nerves were through the roof. But backstage, Bertie Carvel could feel a surge through the theater as he sat and stared at himself in the mirror. He looked back to see not Bertie looking at him, but instead he saw Agatha Trunchbull. Even though it was his Broadway debut, he was ready to deliver. After two and a half hours, the crowd stood to its feet the same way they had in Stratford and in London. After everyone had filed out of the auditorium, Rob, Tim, Dennis, and Matthew all found themselves in a circle backstage with their arms folded, looking at the ground, saying nothing. Finally, breaking the silence, they just said, well, uh, let's not get carried away. I mean, sure, that might have been one of the best opening nights I've ever witnessed, but who knows, we could close tomorrow. But thankfully, they were wrong. Matilda would continue to play to nearly sold-out houses, receive rave reviews from nearly every critic who watched the show, and be nominated for 12 Tony Awards, winning five. Following the ceremony, the show had amassed 47 awards since its inception in Stratford. Broadway is a tough racket, where 80% of shows will never be able to recoup their investment. But only 19 months after opening on Broadway, Matilda was able to cement its legacy as a family hit after recouping its $16 million investment. 
Matilda stayed on Broadway for four years, making a gross of $165 million. By late 2016, however, the Broadway landscape had become incredibly competitive, with new shows like Dear Evan Hansen, Waitress, and Hamilton dominating the scene. Possibly due to this, Matilda would end its New York run on January 1st, 2017, after 1,555 performances and 37 previews. After getting Matilda staged on Broadway, Tim Minchin and Matthew Warchus would reunite once again to bring another beloved property to the stage with a musical adaptation of the 1993 film Groundhog Day. When in 2015, Minchin's phone rang. He looked down and saw that it was the same man he had envied so many years ago in the small Melbourne clubs. He said that he was coming to New York and needed help making connections. So, Minchin arranged a meeting between his agent, John Buzetti, and his longtime best friend, Eddie Perfect. Little did they know, this would be the meeting that would set off his journey with Beetlejuice. As of 2020, Matilda continues to run strong in the UK, with over 3,000 performances in the West End, a new movie adaptation of the show planned with Sony and Netflix, and productions being staged around the globe in Korea, the Philippines, Australia, Ireland, and a US national tour. With the ideal age for the character being 10 years old, as of July 2020, the role of Matilda has been played by over 100 girls. Every night before his children would go to sleep, Roald Dahl would tuck them into bed by telling them fantastical tales that would transport them to other worlds. The power of the story was something that he always held close to him, and it was something that he was worried was going to be wiped out of existence as the human race progressed. It was this power that helped make Matilda resonate with nearly every audience member who saw it. It had been a huge risk bringing on board Matthew Warchus, Dennis Kelly, and Tim Minchin, but it was a calculated one. They weren't attached to the traditional structure of musical theater, leaving room for them to create something that was truly unique and that stood on its own by being cartoony, but still based in reality. Dahl had been so ingrained in them that they were able to trust their instincts to create a show that didn't imitate the writer as much as it did embody his spirit. And in doing so, they were able to walk the fine line between conventional and unconventional theater. To everyone's advantage on the creative team, none of them were particularly attached to the book or the film of Matilda, which meant that they weren't beholden to a certain idea of what the show needed to be. Much like Scott Brown and Anthony King with Beetlejuice and George Reinblatt with Evil Dead, the source material was meant to be an inspiration, not a crutch. But the real key to Matilda's success came in the shaping of Matilda herself. They created a character that audiences didn't feel pity for, but rather someone who would inspire them with her bravery in the face of danger. It would have been so easy to take the Starlight Express route, sacrifice the narrative to create a mind-blowing theatrical experience by exploiting her magic abilities. But at the end of the day, they knew that the most important thing was giving the audiences someone with which they could empathize with. They couldn't sacrifice the story for the spectacle, 
but instead needed to ground the spectacle in the story. They wanted to tell the classic doll tale in a faithful, inventive way. Staying true to the one rule he had given himself, Dennis Kelly didn't write the script for money. He wrote it because he believed in the project. And it's that core belief that was the driving force for everyone involved. They never settled, but instead committed to endless experimentation and debate over conflicting views before they finally found what worked. Though it seems like such a recent history, it's weird to think that kids who saw the show when they were 8 or 9 are driving now. They've grown up with Matilda the Musical, and much like the original book, they've reserved a special place in their hearts for the show that was able to capture their imaginations. The team was able to put themselves back into the mind of children, and proved that while growing up is inevitable, it doesn't mean that the wonder and spark has to die. Matilda will live on as the prime example of the success that can come with calculated risk and the magic that comes with revolting against the traditional process of creating a show. But perhaps the most important lesson that can be learned from the whole process is that without stories, we're just eating machines with shoes. Uh, what's the ticket price to get in? What do you, what do you have I to... don't know exactly. I would imagine between forty and fifty dollars. And you would say that's not money well spent. You could take the money and throw it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours of. There's no reason to do the show. I don't know. Mm. There... Mm. Are, are we supposed to be scared? We're not scared. We don't feel anything for the characters. There's nothing in the music or lyrics to make us care about them. So it goes on and on and on. Special thanks to our amazing Stage Door patrons. Defunct Land, Brent Black, Nazi Zabat, Nate Gardner, Ethan, Julian Dean, LAZTM Productions, Tommy Kindle, Abigail Brazella, John Fogg, Autumn, JC, Chase Eugene McCants, Catherine Esperanza, Brianna Michelle Meyer, Sheffrilas Productions, and Melissa Marquette. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.